Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Season two of The Collective Tap is called Well to Table. It focuses on the role that water plays in the production of food and beverages in Indiana, everything from the field to the bottle. Join us as our field hosts, Taz Walters and Devin Dabney, bring you conversations with the agricultural community in Indiana, commercial producers like Coca-Cola Consolidated and Ingredion, and the people behind some of our homegrown beer and spirits. In this episode, we talk with Brandon Alexander and Brandy Colian of Coca-Cola Consolidated, and Brian Nash and Catherine Zimmerman of Ingredion. We discuss the role water plays in commercial food and beverage production, how companies like Ingredion and Coca-Cola manage their consumption, and why our local water resources are so attractive to business investment. First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective TAP's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water. And I'm Devin Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered. Our first conversation is with Brandon Alexander and Brandy Colian of Coca-Cola Consolidated. Brandon is the plant director for the Speedway Indiana Bottling Plant, and Brandy is an Environmental Affairs Senior Manager. Listen as they describe how a global company uses local water and what they do to protect water resources. So my name is Brandy Colian, and I'm the Environmental Affairs Senior Manager for Consolidated as a whole, so I'm more corporate support. Um, and I live in Charlotte, North Carolina currently, but I am an Indiana native, so born and raised here, so it's good to be back. And I'm Brandon Alexander. I'm the plant director at the uh, Indianapolis site. So we are here at the Coca-Cola bottling plant in Speedway, Indiana. What goes on here? So we have uh, two bottle lines here. We have two can lines here. One thing that makes us kind of very unique is we are our own supplier. So we have uh, PET preforms that we use, um, so we blow our own bottles. Most bottlers, what they, they'll do is they'll truck bottles, so they're transporting air, <laughs> essentially. And so our carbon footprint is significantly less in terms of it takes us one truckload of preforms is equal to 10 truckloads of blown bottles. So we're doing all that on site versus hauling it across the road. What is being bottled here? One of our bottled lines does carbonated soft drinks, so the 20 ounce, the half liter, and 12 ounce. And the other line does Dasani water, um, something that's exciting that we just started last couple of weeks as we're running a completely 100% recycled uh, single serve Dasani bottle. So it's a closed loop system. Um, all of our bottles go into a regrind. Um, and we get the preforms back and we're blowing the bottle. How is water involved in your local operation? Is there local water going into the things you're bottling? Is there wastewater from the manufacturing process? There's a local approach and there's a, a corporate approach, something that's unique. And you know, I shared with White River Alliance back when I joined the board years ago is that we have a water scorecard that we do. Um, and I know Lily was interested in that, uh, Eli Lily and Allison as well. So I'll probably let Brandy start with the corporate approach. Water is really important to our processes. I mean, it's the basis of all the product we produce and without clean water, we don't have any product to produce for our customers. As far as the corporate approach, we have three pillars of sustainability. We have packaging and recovering, water leadership, and protection of our climate. For our water, 
we track a water use ratio for all of our production facilities and then a company as a whole. So since every production facility is going to be a little bit different on what they're producing and how much they're producing, their water use ratio will vary. But we're huge on continual improvement. So we have each of our manufacturing plants make a water use ratio goal every year. And that's kind of our KPI metric to track. So we're monitoring on a monthly basis how many gallons of water it takes to produce a gallon of product. And that is what our water use ratio is. This metric is reported to the Coca-Cola company in Atlanta um, to kind of, you know, have an oversight on all of their bottlers but also it's reported to all the employees at the site. So it's a team effort to reduce our water. And um, if all of the employees kind of see where things are at, they're more likely to report maybe a water leak when they see one or something like that. Can you give us an idea of what that number is, like a range of how many gallons of water go into a gallon of your product? It's about 1.5 liters of water to liter of product. So ideally we'd love to see a one-to-one ratio, but there's always going to be a little bit of excess for when we produce a new flavor per se, we're going to have to clean that tank out and that's all going to be going down the drain. It's not going into product. Um, So you had mentioned wastewater and Indy has a really good relationship with the wastewater treatment center here in Speedway. Their bugs actually really love our sugar water So it kind of keeps their process going. um, And then as just the pH, we have to monitor what that range is when we send it down the drain. How many containers come out of your facility every day? So the number is actually pretty staggering to the the podcast listener, but we produce about 2.4 million containers a day. Uh, Last week, we did 15 million in a week. There's this calculator called the Water Footprint calculator. And it gives you how many gallons of water go into the production of each different food. And one of the ones that kind of shocked me was actually soda. And it was just soda in general, so it wasn't like specific to Coke. But the number that they had was pretty high. And that was because they were accounting for the water that was used in growing the crop of the sugar and all the different ingredients. Is that just accounting for the water you're using? Or is that also including the water that goes into the productions of those crops? Yeah, right now it's just the water we're using to produce the bottles here in the manufacturing facility. To produce the crops, that would be like the scope three emissions. I'm not sure if you're familiar with like scope one, scope two. Um, But that's something that we will hopefully start tracking in the later future. But right now we just have to use what we can get a hold of. And that is our well readings and our... um, water bill readings that kind of tell us how much water we're intaking and then we pay attention to what water we're putting out in the product and then kind of determine the water use ratio from that calculation. And there's quite a bit that we do like at a local level for like being responsible water stewards. One of the things is like we get our water out of an aquifer so we have two wells that we pull out of here rather than the city. Um, Honestly the city wouldn't be able to handle the the amount Um, but we do measure our well levels, like Brandy said, to make sure we're not drain. you know, the aquifer is filling back up as it properly should be. So we're very on top of watching that and making sure we're responsible to monitor it, even though it's not coming from the city. And then when we do get in into our site, uh, you know, how do you, how do you process it, right? The misconception can be, or n- not even a misconception, it can happen, right? Is that like someone's getting water from a well and it's like, oh, well, I can just get it. It just keeps replenishing itself. It's like, well, you're still 
taking water from the earth. So um, what we do here is we, we go through an RO process, right? Because it's got a lot of iron. We have two reverse osmosis systems, systems here, and they're two-pass systems, which is pretty common. Um, it goes through one pass, goes to the second pass. Um, it treats the pH and gets it to the level that you need it for soda, and then it goes out to your, your blending. Um, what's unique to Indy in this area is that we have recovery systems on both of those. So whereas most reverse osmosis systems discharge a certain percentage and it just goes down the drain, we are recovering that uh, discharge water and running it back through pass one. We have about a 96% of the water we bring in we use, which is great because if you, if you don't have a recovery, it's probably 80. Honestly, it's, it's, it's quite a bit lower. Just so that I can understand, the water that you're using is going directly into like a bottle of Coca-Cola? Yes. Is that right? Yes. So what is the final destination of the beverages that are produced here? Where is Indiana water going? Coca-Cola used to be like four or five years ago. It was one unit under North America um, out of Atlanta. Um, they sold off those bottlers um, to different ones. We're Coke Consolidated. We're the largest independent bottler there is. But what that what that did is allowed like the network to expand. So um, like United Bottlers is up in Chicago, but they bought they buy product from this area. Great Lakes is another one. But I can tell you we go as far south as Florida, and we go as far north as New York, in that area, um, and we probably go as far. Well, as far west as St. Louis. So we have a pretty big geographic range on our products. So it's possible someone stopping at a gas station in Florida could be drinking a Coke with water from Indianapolis. For sure. Yeah, I guarantee you that's happening. Yeah. Did you choose this location because of the water supply? Location was chosen in 1969. Something that's kind of unique to this site that like um, the podcast listeners might not know that I think is just pretty fascinating is if you look at a bottle of Coke and it's got HO as our plant code, a lot of people look at them and they're like, H-O. I mean, how'd you get that for Speedway or for Indianapolis? How'd you get H-O? But the Holman family used to own this plant. Um, so it's H-O for Holman. And Miss Holman, the one that says, gentlemen, start your engines for all those years. So they own this. Um, are you still parked for the race in the Coke lot and the C-O-K-E lot? Um, so they still own that land. Um, so I really think that was probably the strategy behind this location. I will say, too, you know, that is a benefit of our company as Coca-Cola Consolidated operating mainly in the Midwest uh, East Coast region is that we are gratefully water abundant here right now. And I know for when I'm on the global calls, the the issues or constraints that maybe some other bottlers are having having in India or California are so vastly different than what we're doing. However, that doesn't mean that we take it any less seriously on the you know water usage because, like I mentioned before, we need to keep this water as plentiful as possible so um, we can be in business for many years to come. You both have underlined that quantity is obviously very important to your operations. Is the water quality of what you're pulling important? Yeah, for sure. So we, we have a certain pH that we're trying to uh, adhere to. I mean, it's like a giant chemistry experiment, really, because we have labs where we're testing all this stuff. But um, one thing that I thinks I've always loved, and I thought from day one when I started Coke and I found this, I was like, that is so cool. Like, Coke targets a certain bricks, and they, which is how much sugar content, and they target a certain water content. So all this stuff is being measured. It's very precise. That's why, you know, if you get a Coke in Indiana or if you get a Coke in California, it still tastes like Coke, right? I always thought that was super cool because I was like, before I started working here, I was like, 
how does Coke taste like Coke in Indiana and Coke tastes like Coke in California or Coke tastes like, now Coke will taste different if you drink it in India or if you drink it in Europe or something like that. But um, I always thought that was really cool. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite soft drinks, uh, ALA, it's based out of Winchester, and they specifically say they pull water from a body of water in Kentucky, so it tastes that way because of the water. And that's kind of what those uh, reverse osmosis systems are. Any bottler, you're going to have a reverse osmosis system or a nanofiltration system because it's taking the water molecule back to its purest form. So whenever it gets to its purest form, water is water no matter where it's at. Um, depending on the location, it may take more effort to clean that water back to its purest form. If it's you know harder, if there's more calcium or um, you know limestone or whatever that might be in the water. But it, when we take that water back to the molecule that it is and then add the ingredients to it, that's also how we keep our uniform flavor globally. And there's a, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of technical stuff behind it. I mean, I won't get too in the weeds, but there, we're measuring conductivity and turbidity on our systems to make sure that like it, it's in spec and they're, they're high tech enough to where if, if it gets out of range, it, it will just shut the system down. So you mentioned you're on an aquifer and you're drawing water from that aquifer. How do you ensure a reliable source? What kind of conservation measures do you have in place for that supply? As far as the wells that we pull from, we do monitor those on a consistent basis. I think we get quarterly reports and kind of see where the water table is going. And thankfully, it's up until this point always replenished itself. It's never really been an issue. Should something ever happen to that water source, um, they have a business continuity plan where we would then maybe pool from the city or we would just take the volume that we're producing here at this location and give it to one of our other locations who aren't having a water stress, um, you know, be it drought or whatever reason may happen. You know, we brought the city in and talked to them about water demand and stuff like that. So there's multiple phased approaches, right? So like the odds of both wells drying up at the same time when we're monitoring on a quarterly basis is basically none. Um, but if, if one would dry up, the city could support partial, you know what I mean? And so you could have kind of a, a phase out plan to figure out the next path. Where are the wells that you pull from located relative to this plant? They're both towards the track. We have one that's on our property and one that's actually, um, if you park over at the track, it's setting over there. Is there anything that you do to protect the recharge zone around the wells? So we, we actually do a, uh, every five years we do a study on, uh, I believe it's, a 10 mile radius, I believe that's what it is, um, around the wells. I mean, I can remember when I started here 12 years ago, there was a dry cleaner, was like five minute, five miles away, and we were monitoring that to make sure, you know, our source of water is being protected, and we're monitoring that for sure. And it helps that, you know, the well, there's those big fields when he says parking at the tracks, it's just that giant field. So you have all of the water that's filtered through the soil that's replenishing the well. It's not a lot of paved areas around the well, or at least our wellheads. Coca-Cola has provided support to the White River Alliance, which is the nonprofit behind this podcast, so thank you. We also saw the art canoe on our way in, which is displayed outside of your office, which was beautiful. Are you involved in any other water advocacy efforts locally or nationally, globally? Yeah, so locally, you're familiar with the Rain Barrel Initiative that we do. Uh, we take our 
HDPE concentrate drums that our um, syrup comes in, and we'll rinse those out and donate those to be used as rain barrels. And we do this here locally. I know with the White River Alliance, we've done it, but we do it in other uh, manufacturing plants and the local um, conservation groups that are around there. And we provide a rain barrel kit to where you can just hook it up to your roof or your gutter and collect all the rainwater to be used in your garden. So as far as consolidated goes, that's a really big uh, water initiative or um, water conservation project that we do. I mean, I think Consolidated has taken like a, a four, you know, forefront stance on on partnering with White River Alliance. I mean, like Brandy said last year, we did a hundred dollar matching campaign. Everybody, that, you know, did a hundred dollars, got a rain barrel kit, and we delivered a semi truck full of rain barrels from that. Um, this year, we did the same matching campaign, and you know, just kind of partnered with this whole with the Art Canoe concept. So, um, I. I think it's a great partnership, and I can I can I can just see it continuing. It seems to be a common theme as we've been interviewing different people that these forces that we think are in competition with each other are actually working towards the same goal because it's better for everybody to have clean water, plenty of clean water, and really be focused on that goal of keeping our water safe. Absolutely, you know we are right there with all of our competitors in you know the liquor industry or soda industry, who are also taking steps on these initiatives because we can't do it alone. We need everyone to take part. Like Coca-Cola, Ingredion is a global company. Though their name might not be as immediately recognizable, Ingredion is mindful of how they steward our local waters as they become global products. A quick note, Devin wasn't able to join us for this interview, so you will only be hearing Taz. My name is Catherine Zimmerman. I'm the Vice President of Operations Sustainability with Ingredion. I work within our global operations team, uh, focusing on how we can uh, deliver our environmental sustainability goals. So these are things like greenhouse gas, water, waste, um, sustainability towards our 2030 targets. Hi, Taz. I'm Brian Nash. I'm Vice President of Corporate Sustainability. Uh, I've been with the company for 17 years, and my role is to um, oversee the, the sustainability strategy, um, as well as work with our internal partners and external stakeholders like investors or NGOs or customers in meeting our sustainability journey. So Ingredion isn't necessarily a household name, but I gather that your products might be common in everyday houses, even though people don't, might not realize that. Can you tell us what Ingredion does, what you produce, and how much water is involved in that process? Ingredion is a global ingredients manufacturer. So um, a lot of our products are made from agriculture, um, ingredients to start out with like corn, tapioca, rice, pulses. And they go into a variety of applications that you may be familiar in the supermarket. So we sell into to food and beverage companies, to industrial companies, to some pharmaceutical companies, um, industrial companies. So. Um, within the supermarket, you may um, often be drinking uh, products that have our ingredients in them. You may be eating cookies or salad dressing that have our ingredients in them, as well as when you print or you take a, receive a corrugated box, our products are, are probably in um, those uh, paper products as well. How much water do you use in the processes of making these ingredients? 
So if we think about the process cycle of, from our raw materials to, to where we ship our product off to customers, there's a huge amount of water used in agriculture. It's one of the, the largest consumers of fresh water on the planet. And, and corn you know, is probably somewhere on the lower end of the scale of, of using water in terms of agriculture. But in terms of our water footprint, that's a big part of it is, is coming from our suppliers who, who grow the, the crops. When the corn arrives at our facility, it's going to be soaked in like a water, like a, what we call it steep water. It's got a light acid in it and it softens up the corn so that we can mill it and, and split it into the different pieces so that we can, we can modify the starch part of that. So then, then we would use water. Once we modify it, we might use an acid. We might use um, some proprietary physical processes to modify uh, the starch. And then we're going to wash it to make sure that it that it's clean. So, and that's going to make sure that it meets FDA or other food quality requirements. So, um, so you got water that you use to steep it. You got water that you use to wash it after it's treated. Then we're going to dewater it and package actually a dry product that will be shipped out to our customer. Not everything's dry. Some customers are going to put water back into it, so we can ship them a wet product. And that way, we don't dewater it. They don't add water. It, it kind of saves them the water cycle there. And then where we can recycle water, we do. We look for those opportunities. And then where that water in the process would have a beneficial use, we look for that as well. So the steep water that we soak the corn actually has a, a higher protein content in it. And, and so we can sell that to local farmers who will put it on feed. And then um, they're feeding, say, like cattle or, or uh, livestock, a higher uh, protein content feed from by, by applying that steep water. Why are you in Indiana? And does the water availability have anything to do with that? Yeah, I mean, our plant in Indiana has been here for over 100 years. It's been here for a long time, right? And, and I'm sure that it was put here because of the proximity to corn. I can tell you that part of, of Catherine's role and part of what we continually talk about in our Global Sustainability Council are the questions that you're asking about geographic water stress. Obviously, if we wanted to build a new plant or expand a plant, we're not gonna look to do that in an area that's water constrained unless there's some other reason why that makes sense, like the products that we're putting in there are not water intensive or um, you know, something, something revolutionary or proprietary, new and innovative that we've created. Um, but it is, it is a factor that we look at in supply planning, in expansion of plants and acquisition of plants. It's always gotta be top of mind because of how important water is to our business. When you're sourcing raw materials from farmers and agricultural partners, are their growing practices something that you ask about before you purchase from them? So we, we have two, uh, two models of buying corn in the U.S. One is commodity corn bought on the open market. So we may or may not know who the farmer is that sold into a grain elevator that, that we bought it from. In Indianapolis, we're all specialty, so we know the growers. And so regardless of which two of those buckets they fall into, all of them we're working to get 100% of our growers for our tier one priority crops, which are corn, tapioca, potato, stevia, and pulses or peas. Those make about 99% of our global sourcing by volume. We're looking by 2025 to get all of those growers, have them 100% sustainably sourced. So all into a sustainable agriculture program, which is gonna look at multiple aspects across the farm, including water, including how do you handle chemicals and are you trying to reduce nitrogen. Where we work in, in Indiana um, with our specialty growers, a lot of them might use practices like precision agriculture. So they're actually sampling their soil and saying, this part of this acre needs water, but the rest of it doesn't. 
So we, we really try to work with them and track how they're using it and, and really look at those practices so we can record it and make sure that they're meeting our, our criteria, but also so we can share best practices if we come across growers that, that aren't using those methods. Where in Indiana are your plants located and what water supplies are you using? So in Indiana, we have one manufacturing plant in, in the Indianapolis area, and we use a combination of water that comes from the city as well as well water for our operation. We've been learning a lot about water quality in Indiana, um, particularly there was an Indianapolis Star article that uh, talked about how polluted Indiana waters are. Does water quality impact what you do? And is that something that you have to be aware of while you're making your products? With all of our, most of our products being food grade material that are gonna go into the food and beverage industry, obviously we have to be aware of quality standards. Um, almost every one of our food sites globally, I think it's 95% follow the Global Food Safety Initiative, which is probably one of the highest um, food safety standards in the world. And, and so um, we have to be mindful of the quality of water coming into the plant that we're using that might come in contact with, with food product. Um, we're obviously mindful of the quality of water that's leaving the plant that we're putting either back to a public treatment work or, or the environment. And then all of the touch points of water and or products within the plant. Um, so yeah, the, the water quality is extremely important to us. There's some regions in the world where we have to treat the water to use it. And then we, we treat it, we use it, we take it out of the product, we treat it again, and, and we put it back. And in some of those cases, there's local farmers that say, I would rather use the water coming out of your plant than, than the local water. And so we'll work with a local, like the local government, local um, academic institutions. Um, I'm thinking of an example in Thailand where they found that the water coming out of uh, our facility was really good for growing napier grass, which cattle can use as a high source of protein, but it can be grown you know, five different crops a year. And so we've been able to take some of that water coming out of the plant, going directly to those farmers and enable them to increase their yields. Can you talk more about how Ingredion is involved in local water advocacy, especially in Indiana? Within our manufacturing plant, we're constantly looking at how can we most efficiently use water uh, in our operation. So this is a combination of say, continuous improvement or our daily processes uh, to ensure that our operations are efficient, our equipment is well-maintained and is operating as efficiently as possible, as well as looking for opportunities to um, bring in different technologies that would allow us to continue to operate, but to use water more efficiently or, or reduce the water that we consume. Yeah, I think Indianapolis and then other places that we operate around the world, there has to be a dialogue with the, the local authorities and the government. So if we're going to increase the size of a plant, that may increase discharges, and we need to make sure that the capacity of the local treatment works can, can handle that. Um, likewise, we would maybe increase demand for water. And, and so I think it, we've found that it has to just be a continual dialogue with government and the local utilities about what our plans are and, and how that might impact the, the community beyond just the walls of our facility. It's good to hear you talking about these things. I think as a random person off the street, which I kind of am, it can be really easy to look at big businesses and be like, oh, well, they don't care. 
they're, they're not going to do anything about this. Like, they're just going to do all this stuff to make a profit. So it's actually really, like, hopeful to hear you talking so thoughtfully about the local resources and, and being aware of how you impact the people in the community. Well, and I can tell you that um, in the food and beverage industry, compliance is like the minimum standard, right? So, so you're going to comply with the law. That's expected of everybody. But really to get a competitive advantage in our industry or to enable our customers to have a competitive advantage, the level of sustainability we're talking about is so far beyond the law in, in terms of customers and you know, Coca-Cola being a perfect example of saying, where are you working in your supply chain on water? Where can we engage with you on, on doing that? And so we're looking really beyond that. How do, we, how do we collaborate? How do we pool our resources and figure out things that make a difference? And it's a lot of trial and error. I mean, there's projects we do where we're like, eh, I don't think I'd do that again, right? And then there's ones that we do that we say, how do we make that bigger, faster, and, and really drive an impact through the supply chain? And also our employees are members of the community as well. And employees want to work for a company that is working towards good, doing the right thing. And it's important for us, for our employees, to feel that they're making a difference in the communities where we operate. An interesting thought that conservation and profits don't have to be in tension with each other. That you can conserve water and that can be better for your business than not conserving water. <laughs> yes, and our, our engineers are, are looking at projects that conserve water, but there's often a, a benefit financially for that as well. So it's really a win-win for, for the environment and, and financially as well sometimes. Are you hopeful for the future of water? Yeah. I mean, it's a complex issue, right? I mean, water is embedded in, in everything, um, probably everything in this room. But I, I'm really hopeful that there's a lot of companies like Ingredient, and we're we're not perfect, right? We're, we, we have got a, lo a long road to go to our 2030 uh, goals. And when we get there, we'll reset and have 2040 goals, right? So we'll continually try to make the company better. It's not about, it's not about a destination, it's about a journey. But to see how many farmers, how many customers, how many investors are all talking about the same topics these days, I, I think that makes me very hopeful for the future, that it's all moving in the right direction where 20 years ago, we weren't having the conversation, so we didn't know that everybody was focused in the right direction. We're not all at the same part in the journey, but, but I, I think, we're again, we're all focused in the right direction. And I'm also optimistic. I think that there's a part that everyone in the community can play in water, whether or not it's somebody in their home, companies, other partners um, within our ecosystem that have an impact on this. Um, as Brian mentioned, the conversation is very different today. I think water scarcity is becoming increasingly um, an important topic for geographies all around the world. So things like this podcast, to really raise awareness to everybody um, will help because it's going to take everybody in the community to, to help us uh, continue on our sustainability journey in the planet. Water is vital for bringing food and beverages to our tables, which means it is also an essential part of Indiana's economy and quality of life. We hope you've enjoyed our conversations on the Collective Tap as we've dipped into the details of this important aspect of water use. In our last episode of this season, we will focus on our local producers. Join us as we talk with Hotel Tango Distillery and Sun King Brewery. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.